Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, listen, we're going to discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Also, what's Doug Ford's next unplanned plan for Ontario? And we'll cover all things in American politics, too, with Reggie Cicchitti with his weekly Washington Report. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we've said, uh, news from Ottawa today, the Public Service Alliance of Canada, that's PSAC, of course, uh, announced that, hey, you've reached a tentative agreement uh, with the Treasury Board. This has been going on for about 12 days right now, and uh, it was getting a little sticky there for a while. The, uh, the union, of course, demanding that the prime minister come to the negotiating table, and that never did happen. But it looks like they've got a settlement. Of course, it still has to be ratified. Uh, just to give us a brief idea as to what's going on, Karen Rebo has some details for us. PSAC says it has secured a four-year contract with wage increases totaling 12.6% compounded over the life of the deal. That deal extends from 2021 to 24. The union says it also provides significant new protections around remote work and against contracting out. It says more details are expected in the coming days and the PSAC bargaining team is recommending acceptance. So that's the uh, the lay of the land as we know it anyway so far. And uh, uh, there seem to be some pretty sp- positive vibes coming from the union leadership about this too. To talk about this and lots more in the uh, nation's capital, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, great to have you back. Uh, it, are they hopping and buzzing in Ottawa these days because it looks like this strike may be over? Oh, yeah. This is going to be a big relief uh, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's awful today here. It's raining and cold. And I think the strike had hit day 12. And so, I mean, it's going to be really interesting. Like the, I think in my view, anyway, the union did really well uh, to have the 12.6%. I know it's over four years, not over three years, but that's a significant, uh, you know, amount. And that's a significant move from where the federal government came in. They didn't get what they wanted on remote work. I think that was probably a long shot. But uh, as far as the wage increase is concerned, I think membership would be happy. I think I can say that. And, and, and you're right. I mean, they did extend it over four years. So I guess, the, you know, the government's going to say, well, you know, we did the best we could to be fiscally responsible about this. Uh, but this is going to be, I, I would think, the summer of our discontent, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, now that COVID is over, hopefully, knock on wood, uh, a number of these unions that pretty much were on hold, on the, they hit the pause button on wage increases and contract negotiations and everything else. What was it, two years, I think, these the guys at PSAC were yeah. looking for a deal. Uh, they're all going to come knocking on the door now, aren't they? Including, by the way, uh, we should mention Canada Revenue, uh, who are still out on strike. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so CRA is still out. And, of course, as we know, this is tax filing deadline day. And so um, they are in a very interesting and impactful position, given given the timing of things and given the fact that um, this is going to be one of those things that really hits Canadians in a service delivery department. Because, I mean, no matter where you are, right, like, I mean, every, everybody everybody does this. And so it's going to be interesting to see how the next few days unfold in their negotiations. But we also know that more negotiations are going to happen with more unions. And so we can probably assume that none of them is going to get this kind of language in the collective bargain, collective agreement around any guarantee of remote work. Like, we're probably not going to see that for anybody. But will everybody get a wage increase that looks like this one? And if so, how is Freeland going to find the money for this? Well, especially with the come to CRA, because my understanding is they're looking for a 30% increase in wages. 
which is just mm-hmm. off the, the charts here right now. So I don't know where that's going to go. Uh, but by the way, we just should remind our listeners, notwithstanding the fact that they're still on strike, uh, if you don't file by midnight tonight, you're still uh, going to be penalized uh, with your, your tax return. Uh, the prime minister uh, had a, another adventure in New York City uh, just a few days ago. Laurie, I want to talk about that if I could. Uh, because the strike was still ongoing at the time, of course, the opposition leader, Pierre Polyev, uh, raked the, the prime minister over the coals at question period, even saying New York, New York, poorly, but he sang it. Um, that was painful, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There'll, there'll be no Canada's Got Talent shot here for Pierre Polyev. Let's just put it that way. Uh, but the criticism was, is, you know, he's down there glad-handing. We all saw the picture of the prime minister and Hugh Jackman, I guess, and a few other celebs. Does a trip like this do any good? I mean, apparently we were told it was to try to enhance Canada's position uh, when it comes to global trade uh, and things of this nature. And he did address a couple of symposiums on this. But is there is there a, a, a positive takeaway for something like this? I think that this is one of those things like it's it's not a G7. It's not something that he had to go to. But I think that there can be a lot of relationship building, of, of you know, positivity and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of results that are hard to see and measure all the time, but that's the work of, you know, showing up, building relationships, being there, looking people in the eye, shaking hands. It's the conversations that are on the sides of the meetings that could lead to cooperation down the road. I don't think there's anything terribly wrong with a prime minister doing any of that, and it might be a really positive thing. But of course, there's a there's an issue with respect to... Um, you know, as you say, the prime minister kind of going out and doing these things and that the conservatives are trying to create a picture of him as this guy who's sort of out there having fun and taking trips and being on vacations. And he's not, in, you know, in kind of engaged enough in the business of running the country. And so because they are able, this isn't a one-off for the prime minister, right? Like he says, yeah, I'm going to go and do all this work. And then he's got his picture taken with Wolverine and everybody see, sees it on Twitter. And so when you sort of compare that against what's going on back home and we've got all of these critical issues it it comes across as being a bit tone deaf on the prime minister's part but is it a problem for the prime minister to go to global meetings well of course not like i i think there's a lot of value to that but it's the way sometimes these things get cast and yeah i mean like that's great that he met Hugh Jackman but the picture doesn't help right because it makes it look mm-hmm. like there he is having a great time where everybody's and everybody's home working Exactly. Meanwhile, back in Ottawa, uh, the Liberals are going to be having a convention in the capital, uh, and uh, an interesting ally, and maybe an unexpected ally, uh, showed up for the Prime Minister, that being Mark Carney, of course, the former governor of mm-hmm. the Bank of Canada, and the Bank of, of England, I suppose, at the same time. Uh, he had His name had been bandied about, Laurier, and you and I talked about this months ago, as a possible a leadership contender should the prime minister decide to step down. Uh, and he's kind of faded away pretty quickly, but now he's back. And not only is he back, but he's he's really uh, giving the prime minister a pat on the back, saying that he thinks the prime minister is bang on with the direction he's taking when it comes to fiscal policies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of speculation over the past few years about whether Carney would put his hand up. And even when, um, when uh, Bill Morneau left cabinet, there was a question around whether Carney was in the wings and whether the prime minister was courting him as the finance minister. And we know none of that happened, but there's always been a bit of speculation around whether Carney would turn his attention to a, a straight up political role. I think at this point, um, this is helpful to Trudeau in taking some of the wings out of the, the sails of the arguments that Trudeau might be looking to leave or should be looking to leave. If he's got an endorsement for someone like Carney and an indication that Carney's not going to throw his hat in the ring, 
that I think helps Trudeau to maintain his own sense of a way forward. But the other thing is, we don't even know when an election is going to be. And, you know, are they going to last to 2025 with a confidence and supply agreement? Well, maybe, but I don't know about that. That seems like an awfully long time. And so for Trudeau, I think it, this isn't enough to keep those questions away, but it's helpful. Uh, in talking with some of, uh, of of your colleagues up in Ottawa, you know, the, the Warren Kinsellas and, and others who cover Parliament on a pretty steady basis, they were speculating, and, and you've read all the speculation as well as I, that uh, that anybody from the Prime Minister's inner cabinet, in fact, there is going to be a leadership convention sometime in the next two years, probably is going to be tainted because they they were the Prime Minister's picks. You know, sure. Christia Freeland, uh, so many others, they say are just too close and going to be, it's too easy to tie them to some of the, the, the unpopular policies of the government. Uh, is Mark Carty uh, far enough away from that, uh, at least an arm's length away from that, that, that he wouldn't be tainted like that? I think 100%, yes. I agree with you that um, the people who are around Trudeau, that would not be seen as a big shift away. That would not be seen as a new regime, a new government, a fresh face on the party, especially since a lot of the people who are close to him are close to him personally. Mm -hmm. And so it's like there's a whole um, team, at, you know, that that's not, you know, that's neither good nor bad nor indifferent, I guess. It's just the way it is. And if the party is going to change leadership, it's going to change leadership. It can't just kind of pass the baton to somebody else who's on the same team and expect people to react differently. So I don't think any of that's going to work. Carney would be a serious contender no matter what. Like he is, he is not, to my knowledge, ever been elected before. He's not part of Team Trudeau in the way that Christian Freeland is, even if he is supportive of him. And so I think if he was indicated in, in who was if he was interested in running, it would be very, very interesting, particularly given his background. Personally, I think it would be very interesting to see him go toe to toe with Polyev on matters related to the economy. I think I would I would buy that ticket in a heartbeat to see how that would go down. But I mean, I I think it's going to be really hard for Trudeau to to walk away. I don't know if that's really what he's thinking at all. People are going to speculate that when you've been the leader for 10 years, but that doesn't mean he's got his mind toward that at all. I Yeah, you're right. I don't think at this stage that it's even on his mind. As a matter of fact, I think this may be even a little vanity at play here that he wants to, he wants to take on Pierre Polyev. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and, uh, you know, one more time, you know, this is, this is the, just, this is the boxing match all over again. Uh, he wants to take this guy down. I don't know if he can do it or not, but I just, I get the sense that he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder uh, when he looks at Polyev. Uh, back to the yeah. convention, which is coming up this week in Ottawa, a policy convention. And so not a leadership convention. We don't want to underscore that. Uh, but one of the keynotes is a uh, former Secretary of State and former presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton, uh, who I think you could probably make an argument for, Laurie, is a rather polarizing figure. You you either love her or you hate her, uh, even within the Democratic Party, apparently. Mm -hmm. What what kind of reaction are we going to get, and, and, and what are they expecting from, from Hillary Clinton at, at the Liberal Convention? Sure. I mean, I think you're right. Uh, she is a polarizing figure. She seems to absolutely bring out that love-hate reaction. And I think um, at the same time, though, she would certainly share a lot of the values that the Trudeau government has. I think we can imagine her coming and speaking, you know, giving a real like blow the doors off the place kind of speech about the kinds of things that Trudeau wants to work on. I think that, I mean, she's a celebrity. She's like when it comes to kind of bringing in somebody again who has a ton of name recognition is going to be a really powerful speaker. She's obviously that. And it's interesting too the timing, um, and this might be entirely coincidental, I, I guess it probably is, like Biden announced last week that he was going to reoffer for the Democrats. And so there's an interesting sort of carryover 
between the debates that we're having having in Canada and the debates they're having in the United States. And so interesting to kind of bring Clinton as a bridge between those two things. And I think a lot of the things that Trudeau talked about in New York last week with respect to America's role as the world's leading democracy and that being under threat here, there, you know, for all the same reasons with respect to polarization and things like that. And so I think it's going to be, um, you know, interesting to see what she says and how she plays that space. Well, you know, when she was in the Obama administration, of course, as Secretary of State, an awful lot of that, of course, was was overseas, uh, dealing with some of the hot zones and conflicts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and given the fact that the Trudeau government seems to be taking a lot of heat, especially from that leaked story from the Washington Post about their, their military commitment or lack thereof, does Hillary Clinton come in and try to assuage those waters and say, no, you guys are a great partner, we're, we're cool? Hmm. I don't know, because like it would be interesting if she did, particularly since she's, I mean, she's a presidential candidate that was not successful, but she's also, you know, a f- former secretary of state and, you know, an f- extremely powerful person in American politics. And oftentimes when people have held these big roles, she hasn't been president, but she's been extremely, you know, central and, and powerful and important in American politics. Oftentimes when people retire, they don't you know, then go in and directly weigh into the debates that are going on because they're sort of like, you know what, whatever she says has the possibility of kind of stepping on Biden's toes, especially when he's trying to reoffer and he's trying to kind of situate himself as having his own position on what is the role for Canada. Like he's been really clear that he wants Canada to be playing a much larger role in Haiti. And I'm sure he'd like it if we made much larger contributions with respect to NATO. So if she comes in and says, hey, you guys are a great partner, he may not love that. She may not care. I don't know. It'll be great to to see what she says and see how it maps onto Biden's positions or not. Why don't former Canadian leaders do that same thing? I mean, you're absolutely right. Hillary Clinton, even though she never did you know, make it into the, the, the Oval Office, uh, was a high-profile figure during the Obama administration and during her, her runs as president, too. Uh, ex-presidents tend to, to want to still kick around. Pro- former prime ministers usually just kind of fade away and don't say much about anything, do they? It's often the case, right? Like sometimes they do, they write books like Prime Minister Kretchen has done that. Um, but, uh, but sometimes, a lot of times, they just kind of seem to go on to some other kind of life or go into retirement and you don't hear them a whole lot. And there, and I mean, I think it's common for them to be quite active on, but not in a way that's, that's right out in front, right? Like they might be talking to, for example, like if you were thinking about running for leadership for a party, it would be a smart idea to go to a former prime minister, you know, take them for dinner, talk about what's going to, what you should expect. Can you have their support? That kind of thing. I think the kind of consigliere role is still being oh, yeah. played by, by former prime ministers, but you're right. You don't see the out front um, nature of it sometimes that like you do with presidents. Well, that's uh, the Canadian way, I suppose. Uh, mm. Busy week coming up in Ottawa. Laurie, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Have a good week. You too. Take care, Bill. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We found out uh, that the education minister is going to be a busy guy today, too. This is supposed to be an off week for Queen's Park. I don't know what's going on here. Well, our next guest certainly does. Uh, she is uh, Sabrina Nanji, who is the publisher of uh, Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, great to have you on the program today. Thanks for joining us. I'm here. <laughs> Happy there Monday, Bill. Well, and listen, <laughs> I, I, I just mentioned it. This is the house is not sitting this week, so that usually means things slow down just a little bit. 
but it doesn't seem it's going to be that way for you. We just had the uh, or the uh, labor minister, uh, Mr. McNaughton, talking about the, the new legislation he's proposing right now to get people back to work, uh, people with criminal records. Uh, my understanding is the education minister, Stephen Lecce, is busy today. He's going to be in Burlington, uh, I guess, about an hour from now. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this should be a quiet constituency break uh, for Queen's Park, which means the House isn't sitting, but MPPs are, you know, not on vacation. They're doing their work and their ridings. Uh, but it certainly means no no question period, no debates. And, uh, you know, the Premier might be a little bit happy about that because, as you said, there, uh, you know, there is a lot of news breaking that... Um, certainly uh, the opposition critics and, and us reporters would maybe want to hold him accountable on. Um, one of these is is a, a leaked uh, report this morning from The Globe saying that Education Minister Stephen Lecce is going to announce mandatory uh, mental health uh, curriculum programs for high school students. And I think that's something, um, you know, everyone can, can get on board with. We all know how tough the pandemic has been, especially on our young people. Um, and it, this has a, a bit of a personal touch for the progressive conservatives because one of their backbenchers, Natalie Pierre, who actually represents Burlington, um, she had a son who uh, took his own life in 2017 mm -hmm. when he was 17 years old and in grade 12. And so this really hits home for them. Um, and I think it's, it's a very important move. But, uh, you know, when we do have a chance to, uh, you know, pepper the education minister with questions, um, we are all looking for updates on negotiations with teacher contracts right now. And so this announcement is coming against the backdrop of what we hear are very slow negotiations. Uh, you know, both sides have, have not exactly been, you know, nice to each other with this rollout <laughs> of education announcements from the minister. Don't forget, there's also this overhaul of school boards happening and, uh, you know, less funding, you know, technically more funding, but less funding than education unions in particular would have liked to have seen um, for this academic year. So while while it's a good news announcement, I think coming today, there's a lot of there's a lot else happening on the file that uh, I think, you know, certainly the education minister will be asked about. Well, exactly. And, and as you say, there's the contract negotiations, there's the rollout of this curriculum, uh, you know, who's going to teach it, uh, when does it start, et cetera, et cetera. So there's uh, a, a lot a lot that has to, to, I guess, be put on the bones here to try to get a better reading on this. Uh, uh, you know, the cynic in me, uh, Sabino, might say that, well, they, they're doing all these announcements because they're, they're trying to change the channel. Uh, the week before that, probably a couple of weeks before that, uh, it's, it's been a pretty rough time for the Premier uh, with the Ontario Place Science Centre announcements and, and a number of other things going on. This, I, I think he's probably looking for a little opportunity to try to, uh, you know, turn the heat down a little. Well, you know, it it, it wouldn't be that um, odd of a, an assumption here. I think the Premier is is actually pretty skilled at changing the channel. He seems to have this, um, you know, back pocket arsenal of rather, uh, you know, good news announcements to kind of counteract some of the, the controversy um, that, that you mentioned, in, including the, the Science Center move and, and what's happening at Ontario Place. Uh, you know, just last week we had, uh, you know, changes to bail reform, something all the premiers across the country have been pushing the feds on. Uh, you know, Ford had, had an announcement related to that, uh, you know, targeted funding for the OPP, more focus on bail. And that was, you know, something I think that, you know, we could say was, was good news, uh, but it sort of came right on the heels of this other controversial announcement that the, the government was going to be scrapping police uh, post-secondary requirements for police recruits, which basically means that, you know, if you want to be a cop, you don't necessarily have to have a, a college or, or university degree. And, uh, you know, the idea is uh, to 
to to boost our our ranks, which I think is is necessary. But there's a lot of concerns that you know less training might not be the answer here, and especially because this is coming out after the uh, mass shooting report that we had from out east that you know essentially said you know more training um, is what we need in our police forces, not less. And so uh, yeah, you're right. You know, there it's a little bit of, of give and take. I think right now with the Ford government, but as we've seen, they have not been afraid to backtrack on. Uh, controversial decisions if the, the people are loud enough about it. Well, and, you know, the, the Ontario Science Centre, I think, is a classic example of that. I mean, you know, it was sort of out of the blue, and it wasn't even, if I recall, Sabrina, it wasn't even a media conference about that particular issue, but somebody raised it, and he started to go off about how, you know, it's it's in terrible shape, and, you know, it's, it's falling apart, and, and we're not going to fix it. We're just going to, we're going to move it down there, and that, that raised an awful lot of eyebrows. Uh, and I, I guess the question I know you did with your reporting, and a lot of other people at Queen's Park uh, were, well, show us the homework, show us the, you know, the, the, the rationale and show us the justification for making a move like that. And that hasn't really been forthcoming, has it? No. And even the response on that question, uh, it's reporters and also opposition critics have been demanding to see the business case uh, and some of the numbers behind this decision. You know, the Ford uh, government has kind of been a bit wishy-washy on it. And it's hard to get a clear answer of if they're actually going to do that. You know, initially we had the infrastructure minister, Kinga Surma, saying that they were just, you know, double checking their numbers, going over the, the, the fine print, and then they were going to to release more information. You know, Ford said that wasn't going to happen. And then the day after, he kind of said he was open to it. And so I think that this is just creating a lot more um, drama around this situation where they could kind of just nip this in the bud uh, and, and say, you know, here's the business case. We've been considering it for a long time. Here, Here's our work. I think this has become such a hot button issue and such a political hot potato now because it's become a focus of Toronto's mayoral election. Uh, and, and so the there's, a, I guess, maybe a bit of urgency from the Ford government to kind of move on this. But at the end of the day, I think for the general public, um, you know, they're kind of worried more about, you know, filling up their car with gas or, you know, being able to to, to meet their grocery bills and, and needs. And so I think, you know, thinking about spending a couple hundred bucks right now to take the family downtown, um, I'm not sure if, if, if most families are, are concerned about that. Um, but certainly, you know, this is kind of one of those things that the Ford government has created more problems and more questions and a lot more scrutiny and criticism about something that, uh, you know, I think if they had made the case for it and rolled it out in maybe a bit cleaner of a, of a way, it wouldn't have been as problematic as, as it has been. Let's talk about another big headache that's, uh, I guess, on the horizon. And and I remember, I guess it was a year, year and a half ago, you and I were talking about uh, the very controversial Bill 124, which, of course, was that wage cap legislation. Uh, it got struck down in the courts. And, and as soon as, as that happened, of course, I, you predicted, well, the other shoe that's going to drop here is they're going to want back pay. And, and now it looks as if an arbitrator said, yeah, they deserve it. Uh, Ontario hospital nurses should get retroactive pay for three years during which they were subject to the wage restraint. I haven't seen any numbers on that, but that's going to be a rather significant uh, price tag, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think this decision um, that an arbitrator has made for the nurses uh, could be precedent setting. We're also hearing um, a lot of, uh, you know, this this kind of talk happening with LCBO workers who were also subject to that 1% wage cap over the last three years. 
and, and now, you know, they were picketing over the weekend, LCBO workers were, uh, and because they want higher wages. And so essentially an arbitrator has says that nurses deserve that about 0.75 uh, increase annually. Um, but, but don't forget this bill 124 is still being battled out at the courts. Mm-hmm. And so we have our court date set for, uh, you know, late June, um, the courts have already struck it down, but we know the Ford government is appealing it. And so this could kind of be a lot longer and more expensive of a legal battle. Uh, it's not over yet. Uh, it's not really clear what this decision will mean, if the nurses will actually get their pay, how much they'll get. Uh, you know, this this court case can uh, can obviously impact that. But at the end of the day, you know, this could end up costing billions and billions of dollars for taxpayers. And the FAO, our financial accountability officer, has kind of had these vague ballpark numbers that if the Ford government were to lose this appeal, it would cost at least $8 billion, including in retroactive back pay, new wages um, at, at much higher rates uh, to kind of keep up with inflation, which we know is is just, you know, through the roof right now. And so there's a, a there's a, a big legal battle on the horizon. Uh, it remains to be seen if the Ford government would, would take this all the way up to the Supreme Court. But there is kind of precedence around this. Um, don't forget the Ford government brought in their notwithstanding clause to, to make this stick because the courts have kind of already ruled that, you know, the right to, to free bargaining is, is a charter protected right. And so that was, uh, you know, that was on the basis of why this law was shot down the first time uh and so it's still it's still a long legal battle to go before i think nurses or or any public sector workers might see some retroactive pay uh you just sent a shutter down the the backs of just about eight million people when you just said the lcbo workers uh that one's kind of off the radar right now because of all the other uh, i guess union things that are going on right now uh but their contract is due and 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 not just the money of course it's always going to be money when you come to these negotiations uh, but they're going to, I guess, resurrect one of those old things, too, about the number of part-time versus full-time employees at the RC, at the LCBO, because that was a big issue last time, uh, that what they seem to be doing there is 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 not hiring full-time staff, just hiring part-time. Uh, crazy hours, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. Uh, that's another one that could get very confrontational if it, if it starts to spin out of control. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and I think LCBO workers in particular are are feeling like they got the the short end of the stick here, uh, especially because you know they were one of those few places that that were open uh, during COVID, and so I think you know workers are are now feeling the pinch like we all are. And so wages are certainly a big part of this. Bill 124 has really complicated uh, things. And, and now that it's lifted, uh, that that three-year timeline for it is gone, um, they're, they're pushing hard on wages. But you're right, it also has to do with full-time pay because there are so many more benefits that come with being a full-time worker. Uh, and so, you know, the, the contracts are up, coming up for teachers. Teachers are in negotiations now. LCBO workers and nurses are not the only public sector workers here. And so I think, you know, the aftermath of this Bill 124 uh, seems like it could get, uh, you know, complicated and potentially much more expensive than the Ford government was hoping for. Uh, one other quickie here, because I know we're getting kind of tight on time here. Uh, a familiar uh, name is, is is popping back into the into the political realm here in Ontario. Uh, one Roman Baber, maybe explain to our listeners the, 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 sh- the history there about what he once was and what he's trying to be now. Yeah, so Roman is a bit of a, a firecracker, if I can say that, <laughs> at, at Queen's Park. You know, he used to be a progressive conservative, represented York Centre, um, and then he got booted out of the, the Ford government benches because he was against uh, COVID lockdowns and was very outspoken against that. Um, of course, you know, we have virtually no COVID lockdowns in place now, but 
he still kind of paints himself as this, uh, you know, anti-establishment, lone conservative. And now he's he's making a political comeback. He's hoping to run for the, the federal conservative nomination in New York Center, the same place he represented at Queens Park. Uh, but it's very early days yet, right? Like there's, we, we don't really know when there's going to be an election. Um, there, there's no timeline for a nomination race. There's already a liberal representing that riding. Don't forget, Roman tried to run um, unsuccessfully for the federal conservative government. So he is definitely a familiar face in, in Tory politics, uh, and I, I think he he will make this an interesting race. But he was uh, basically banned from running for the provincial conservatives because of his anti-COVID stance. You know, Doug Ford took took a hard hard line on that. He didn't even let people who were unvaccinated run for him. Um, and so I I think you know it will be interesting to see how he's welcomed again into the. Uh, federal conservative party because as we know there's really no love lost between Pierre Polivare and, and then Doug Ford right now. Boy that's uh, an issue we, we could spend the next couple hours talking about that I know there's a, a feature I guess a couple of days ago in the Toronto Star about the, the comparison between the two of them. Uh, pro- I, I think arguably maybe the, the two highest profile small c conservatives in the country right now Polyev with the federal party and Doug Ford here in Ontario uh, but two very different approaches to to, to the way that they govern and, and to the way they run their parties, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, th- there's a lot of uh, butting heads happening between the two parties right now, but you know, we have seen Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau playing nice and Trudeau kind of exposed the rift between um, the, these conservative factions by pointing out clearly, you know, Doug is not Pierre. Uh, and, y- you know, obviously we know what he is, uh, Pierre. Pierre's stance has been on some of these electric vehicle announcements, the Volkswagen, uh, but the, the Ford government is completely shunning that, that wing of, of their camp. Uh, and, and they're saying, you know, Pierre doesn't really get it. This is how things are done. Obviously, you know, the Ford government and Trudeau's government are, are playing very nice with each other. They're they're both, um, you know, politically can be politically advantageous to each other right now. And obviously, you know, uh, they are pumping up EV uh, announcements. And I think we'll, we'll see a lot more of those uh, coming down the line. And so it will be more of a Trudeau Ford bromance more than anything else. Well, sure, especially, and I think the you know the the classic example of that was uh, was the Volkswagen announcement, uh, the the kind of little mini loving that the two of those had, uh, much to the chagrin of Pierre Polyev. Uh, it's uh, it's not going to be a slow week for you, Sabrina. I uh, wish you all the best. I know you got a lot of stuff to chase down, but as always, we'll be watching for your reporting in Queen's Park Observer. Thanks for this today. Thanks so much. Have a good day, Bill. You too, Sabrina Nagy was the publisher and founder of Queen's Park Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was uh, an interesting week in Washington uh, this past week for a whole lot of reasons, uh, culminating with, uh, well, a tradition that was uh, finally reestablished, that being the White House Correspondents' Dinner in Washington. And as uh, Chuck Severson reports, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, was very serious uh, and touched on some very, very poignant issues, but uh, also had a few laughs with himself, too. Here's the report. Singling out some of the thousands of formally dressed journalists. I'd call Fox honest, fair and truthful. But then I could be sued for defamation. And one host recently jettisoned from CNN. You say I'm ancient. I say I'm wise. You say I'm over the hill. Don Lemon would say that's a man who's prime. Getting serious. Journalism is not a crime. The president calling for the release of journalists imprisoned in Russia and Syria. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News. 
Well, uh, I want to talk to one of those journalists who's uh, been covering the White House for a number of years now for Global TV uh, and get an update on a couple of key issues in Washington, that being, of course, Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent uh, for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Uh, the, the, the correspondence dinner is, is, I think, important for a lot of reasons, especially uh, for the fact that, first of all, because of COVID and because of the former president, uh, they didn't have one for a very long period of time. Uh, COVID still had an impact on that. Uh, I'm not suggesting it's an evening where you put all your troubles aside because there were some serious elements to this as well. But how important is it for, for the recognition of, of, of journalists in, in, in a, a very, very well touchy situation in Washington these last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's important. There are some people on one side of the story saying, look, journalists shouldn't be celebrated. They shouldn't be the story. They're doing um, important work. And they're, you know, there, there's a concern that this leads to a bit of, uh, you know, insiderness with politics getting too close to the actual story. And at the same time, this is a moment for journalists to come together because it is a difficult job. It is hard to cover, you know, the day-to-day job, uh, the day-to-day news across the United States and to keep an eye on the political sphere uh, and to see everybody back in a room. And of course, this is a big and glitzy gala with, you know, celebrities and journalists alike. But to come at a moment where you have the the president um, speaking to a, a group of journalists saying that, you know, journalism shouldn't be a crime. Journalism shouldn't be something that puts a journalist in danger. That is important for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, in foreign countries like in Russia, you have a Wall Street journalist, uh, a Wall Street Journal journalist who has been, um, you know, imprisoned for his reporting on the Ukraine war. And at the same time, you have new polling out of the United States that shows that three quarters of Americans blame the media for dividing the nation. And obviously there's, you know, nuance and partisanness to that. But to have the journalists in a room before a president who is embracing journalism, not pushing it back, it is um, it is an important moment for this country to remain in. Well, and I thought former Governor uh, Schwarzenegger, who was out there on video, his uh, message was, look at, you know, in other, reiterating exactly what you said, the importance of, of journalism. He says, you know, sometimes your questions really bug me, really bother me, but, you know, it's it's something that has to be done. Uh, the former president never realized that, uh, never acknowledged that. So uh, it, it's, it's a tough job. And, and notwithstanding, you know, there are some journalists like Fox News that, you know, the, 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 the Hannity pillow talk sessions with Donald Trump every evening, uh, but there are others that are such as yourself, frankly, that that are in there trying to find the story, trying to find the the reasons behind the story, and and knowledge is power. And and the more the, the work that you guys do, and the more work that you can uncover, uh, I think it gives Americans a better understanding and Canadians, for that matter, as to what's going on in the world and why. Yeah, and and look, I think to your point uh, when it comes to uh, networks like Fox News, Fox News, and hosts like. Um, Hannity and and former host Tucker Carlson, um, there there's a line that gets blurred between the media and between the opinion. Uh, and when the news stops and when the opinion starts, sometimes it is a little murky and it's hard to tell which one can be which. And that's why in this polling that was put out by the Associated Press last week, when they say three quarters of Americans blame media for dividing the nation, a lot of that is rooted in the fact that you have cable news running on a 24 hour um, uh, schedule 
really putting opinion and mixing opinion in with the news uh, and and it becomes more slanted it becomes more one-sided and it makes it more difficult for the average person watching tv or listening to the radio or reading the paper to to understand that you know opinion is not news opinion is just that but they take it as news they take the headlines and they work that into the opinions and that's why this polling shows that there is such um, a moment a dangerous moment for journalism in the united states at least when so many americans aren't trust or uh, don't, don't have the trust in the people that are delivering the news because again a lot of it has been bogged down in opinion and that was especially true over the last couple of years when the former president was in power um and you found that journalists were under attack for reporting on the truth but people didn't want to hear the truth they thought that that was journalist slant so again the, the the importance of journalism can't be understated the importance of the work that a journalist does can't be understated but until the vast majority of the public understands that it's not always an opinion that's being told, that it is the truth and it is the power of that truth that it's important, um, it, it can be a dangerous ledge that journalists stand on. Well, especially when you have people, and you've alluded to a couple of them already, that, that blur those lines. And they do it on purpose to try to get their message across as fact as opposed to you know fiction. And and the one I wanted to ask you about is something that I think is very troubling that we've developed. I know you've been reporting on this over the last couple of weeks now, Reggie. Uh, we knew that uh, that the the Roe versus Wade uh, decision by the Supreme Court and subsequent uh, move by a number of state legislatures right now about uh, about abortion rights and women's rights uh, is going to be a real problem for the Republicans going forward in the next election in 2024. And you wondered what they were going to do to retaliate, and it seems pretty clear the, that that what they've decided to do. I don't know if they did it consciously, but it seems to be happening, is targeting the transgender community uh, in a big way. And, and Mike Pence and, and, and Nikki Haley and so many others are, are, are really, are, I guess, trying to use that as, as a linchpin to try to get an upper hand here. They're doubling down on the on the, uh, the attempt to try and score political points with a group that doesn't expand in size, but gets very bored with a topic when that topic has kind of been resolved with some kind of mutual agreement. Look, the topic of abortion has become um, a difficult hurdle for Republicans to overcome. And you'll notice a lot of Republicans now are starting to back away, save for people like Ron DeSantis. Um, it, it's no longer this big push for Republicans. So they are now on to the next issue. And there are hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of pieces of legislation, not so much at the federal level, but that are being passed at the state level that do exactly what you did. They target uh, the trans community. The problem is that, number one, it has the medical community speaking out. It has um, advocates and allies within the LGBTQ community speaking out, but it also has some within the Republican Party speaking out saying, look, we may not be doing ourselves um, a service here by attacking what is essentially less than 1% of the population and making it a countrywide issue. And there are serious concerns within the Republican Party that this could become another backfire on Republicans come next week, uh, come next year, rather, uh, when polling that was out just maybe a month ago, Bill, showed that 64% of people, including 55% of Republicans, sided with a statement that limiting the rights of transgender people in the United States was simply done to get a political rouse out of the base, that, that there's nothing really behind it, and they're just doing it so that they can try to show their base that they're doing something. doesn't work, though, when a base doesn't expand. Well, because they're playing off a stereotype here, aren't they? I mean, you know, when you get some idiot like Kid Rock, you know, that uh, that's you know taking shots at Bud Light cans uh, simply because there was a, a transgender individual that was 
putting a video up. Uh, it's going to play to a certain audience like that, you know. Well, as Jeff Fox would say, the rednecks, you know, that that just have no tolerance at all for that sort of thing. But uh, I don't think that group is going to swing an election one way or another, are they? No, no, they're they're speaking to a very small group, and there's a real chance here that the more that some of these people speak out that are in uh, that are on side with the LGBTQ community or members of like the Montana representative who's been banned from attending. Um, the House floor uh, in the state, uh, they no longer are allowed to vote in person. They have to do it remotely because they were censured for speaking out vocally against bills that were being passed by the Montana House. This is an issue that could rally um, independents. It could rally swing voters. It could rally uh, suburban voters who feel that once again, politicians are injecting themselves far too far into matters that are uh, that should be shared amongst a person, their family, and members of the medical community. This is essentially the abortion issue, uh, just you know, a little bit different. Um, and this could this could be problematic for Republicans, despite the fact that you have someone like the former president in recent days saying that if he wins again, he would make it a, a federal crime for doctors to be able to prescribe hormonal medication uh, or or for for psychiatrists and therapists to be. Um, you know, assisting in uh, in a transition. The, the, these could be dangerous moments for Republicans, and you're going to see Democrats seize on this like we already are. And, and which is, I guess, bringing some people out of the woods. You mentioned the former president, of course, uh, his his former vice president, uh, who, of course, appeared before the, the investigative committee last week, seems to be really taking the lead on this. I mean, I, I, we already knew that he was a, a, a hardcore right-of-center believer in, in Christian values, to use his phrase, uh, long before he uh, even became vice president. That's the way he ran the, pro- the, the state when he was the, the governor. Uh, in Indiana, of course, and uh, he and Pete Budovich have butted heads as a result of that. Uh, but he seems to think that that's that's his core constituency, and he's he's he seemed to to, to veer away from that, Reggie, when he was in the White House. Uh, not so much now, though. No, not so much now. And again, it's trying to speak to a group that these people think that these candidates or these wannabe candidates think is going to ultimately lift them above the rest. And 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 for, for Mike Pence, I mean, as early or as as uh, I believe it was early February, he was running ads in Iowa against gender affirming uh, policies in school. So this is uh, this is an issue. This is a topic that that Republicans you know, whether they are center right or far to the right are really latching onto because they feel that this is going to mobilize the base. But again, the problem is it is just a segment of the population that is less than 1%. It's roughly 2 million Americans identify uh, as trans or transgender. And that could be problematic for the group as a whole, whether it is someone like Mike Pence who uses Christian values to, to kind of appeal to the base or whether it's someone like Nikki Haley who's trying to position herself away from the kind of nonsense that some Republicans have been spewing but then gets up in recent days and talks about the fact that these are you know boys who dress in makeup uh, as opposed to accepting that these are uh, people from the trans community this could be um, this could be a political crisis for Republicans uh, as the months roll into what is going to be the 2024 election. And again, Democrats are going to seize on this to say, look at what Republicans did last year when it came to women's rights. They are simply using discriminatory language and laws now to attack those that they don't believe fall into those quote-unquote Christian beliefs and Christian values. Troubling times. Uh, we'll be watching, as always, for your reporting on uh, Global National, Reggie. Thanks again for this. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Bill.
Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent uh, for Global News. And uh, so many different aspects of this. We just barely touched on uh, Pence's testimony, of course, before the investigating committee. And there's a number of investigations uh, going on about uh, the former president, too, that uh, are going to uh, come forward, I guess, with their findings in the next couple of weeks. See how that impacts that race. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.